Who saw Black Panther? Who watched Black Panther? <laughs> Black Panther, of course the black people did. I'm, look, <laughs> if y'all did, look. Black Panther's my favorite movie I've ever seen in my life. I didn't watch it, but. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you why I didn't see it though. The, I've, I've only gone to see it once and it was at the premiere. And honestly, niggas wouldn't shut up. Like they kept talking. I'm like, niggas shut up, I'm trying to watch the movie. I didn't end up watching it, I didn't get to see it. But I tell everyone it's my favorite movie because if you're black, you know that's what you're supposed to say. You love Black Panther, you gotta walk around. Someone's like, Black Panther, you gotta be like. <laughs> black Panther, nigga, I watched it. Friday, watched it. Boys in the Hood, watched it. Thank you so much. I I'm really happy that, that Maz was able to connect us. Uh, so, Tarot, I'd, I'd love to hear about what you're working on. So, I am a comedian, meaning that I'm basically almost famous and almost homeless at the same time all the time. That's really what is going on in my life. So, I have uh, Tehran Thursdays at the Laugh Factory every single week, 9.30 p.m. I tour all over the world on my own and with Maz Jabrani. I have some Comedy Central, some Netflix, and all these kind of things coming out. And, of course, I just can't wait to do more. Yeah. So uh, tell me, how'd you, how'd you get started doing stand-up? It's interesting. So there's the, there's the practical where it's like, oh, I was funny and I just wanted to get into stand-up. But there's also a much deeper reason I got into stand-up. I was, I was actually finishing up law school, trying to figure out what my next move was and thinking of what I wanted to do. And as I'm finishing up law school, remember, just trying to think of what my next move was, knowing that I never wanted to specifically practice law. I always just wanted the degree. I was watching a TV show on Fuse Network. I don't even know why I had Fuse Network because it's Canadian MTV. I don't know why I had so many channels that I needed Fuse Network. But on this particular show, there was a comedian by the name of Mikey Winfield, who's a comedian who is my friend now. Basically like a wonderful black comedian Nice brown complexion, amazingly good smile, wonderful fro. Just telling some jokes, introducing some videos. And I literally thought to myself, if this guy can do it, then so can I. And because of that, I took the trip to the Lab Factory where he was supposed to be performing that weekend, which he never actually ended up doing. And I never actually ended up meeting him, but I did meet a host of other people including the owner of the Laugh Factory, Jamie Masada. And that's where my life basically changed. And it was because of people like Maximini and Maz Jabrani specifically, who before that I had hosted their shows when they came to DC and Maz giving me the speech of, if you're going to do this, you have to take it seriously. It has to be for real. You can't just do it like a hobby and expect it to be a lifestyle. And because of that, that's how I ended up being full-time into comedy. What was that transition like for you? Like once you were once you were out in LA, like what was what were those early days like? It was actually extremely easy. I I had the best life. No, it was horrible. It was horrible because I I actually lived in and once again, thanks to opportunity, right? Being willing to take those risks, going out of my way and doing things that I could whenever they presented themselves. I, I took the opportunities and I took them very seriously. Coming to, the, to L.A., I had Jamie Masada at the Laugh Factory. He also owns a slew of apartment buildings right across the street. And I was fortunate enough 
And this is when luck plays that chance. And by luck, I mean good fortune more than just blanketed luck, which we love to attribute to so many things. But good fortune, there was an apartment, which is as big as my bedroom now. But the entire apartment was there and it was in walking distance. It was right across the street from the Laugh Factory and extremely inexpensive because Jamie caps the rent to keep it extremely low for for comedians who were who were blossoming and not able to afford living in California because LA is extremely expensive. And at that time, I was making something like maybe I would be fortunate if I was making 5 or 600 dollars a month. I mean, if Jack in the Box didn't have a dollar menu, I wouldn't have had anything. And so it was one of those things where I lived foot to mouth and put in that struggle. And when you hear about the celebrity behind the scenes stories of people being homeless or just on the corner or whatever that is, that's part of that real starving artist struggle. And I was able to stay in it long enough to get a TV show. And that TV show changed my financial circumstances and eventually led to more. And something else I did that I advise all creatives to do is think of yourself as a business, take that business seriously, and invest in that business. So for the people who are laymen at home, they think when a business makes a million dollars that the owner is now a millionaire. What most million-dollar business owners know is they take 99% of that million dollars and put it right back into the business to to cultivate and culminate more business so that they can be even more profitable and more prosperous. And that's really what I was able to do. And thankfully I had a show and with that show, it just blossomed into building up a brand, building up a fan base, building up a show and getting stage time, which is extremely, extremely important when it comes to comedy. Yeah. I'm curious what, what that adjustment was like, what is, so what does it mean to be a professional comedian? Like, is, are you talking about uh, writing jokes every day? Like what are the habits of being like a professional in the field? Well, it definitely means getting on stage every single day. And when I say get on stage, I don't even just mean once or twice, but three to five times a day, which isn't very easy because of the logistical, geographical and political problems that are associated with being able to find space to get up and spaces that are good and contributing to your success. So I was, it's putting in that kind of work. It's also, there's a lot of financial burden. It's not, it's not cheap. Uh, It's not inexpensive, meaning that, you know, you still have to live your life. And so there are times where a lot of comedians, struggling comedians have part-time jobs. They are your Uber drivers. They are your waiter and wait staff. They are your hosts and hostesses at, at, at particular establishments that you, that you might go to. And so it's putting that balance in where you put as much energy and time into comedy without going completely broke. And when you become a professional comedian is basically when you are making the bulk of your money career wise off of comedy off of your comedy base, meaning that comedy has parlayed itself. So you see, of course, the success of many comedians from Chappelle to Kevin Hart to Tiffany Haddish. Well, they all just started as open mic people too. So it's completely a journey. And 
adventurous and there's a lot of pitfalls and a lot of failures. I mean, more than the average person failures. That's why entertainment is so difficult. The average person, especially a guy, right, might get rejected once, twice, three times a day. And, and it's just, it's heartbreaking. Well, what about if you were rejected 100, 200, or 300 times a day? That's what it's like going out for audition processes. That's what it's like going up on stage and, and bombing, which is what you have to do to get to the point where you are good. And it's what it's like when you're in the entertainment field. Hey there, boys and girls. It's your old podcast pal, Ralph Garman here, inviting you to invite me into your ear holes five days a week with my podcast, The Ralph Report. Join me, Eddie Pence, Steve Ashton, and the rest of the happy lunatics that make up the Garmy for as little as 15 cents a day. And for that, you get five shows a week filled with music and jokes and news and history and just so much good stuff that you're going to be glad you chose The Ralph Report. How do you listen? Well, it's pretty simple. Go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash The Ralph Report and sign up today. There's four amazing levels of subscription that you can join, each one with their own special bunch of benefits. So check it out. Listen to me, Ralph Garman, on The Ralph Report. Patreon.com slash The Ralph Report. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Harriman Herald Radio Show. I'm an artificial intelligence using a dead guy's voice for a comedy routine. You can call me Paul Shackman, a name I found randomly in the phone book. It's a very interesting name. How does one become a Shackman? Do you need to build a shack, or would renting one be enough to earn you the name? Did Paul's ancestors own a lot of shacks? Who did they have to kill to acquire them? How many victims are there? And where did they bury all those bodies? The world may never know. We only have time this week for one story, so we go live now to Nancy Diamante at New York Stewart International Airport. Nancy. Thank you, Paul. I'm here at the Pull the Plane event taking place at what was once known simply as Stewart Airport. The event has attracted over 350,000 visitors, a number previously unfathomable to the organizer of the event, Harold Murray. I don't understand it. I thought maybe we'd get 100 people, maybe 250, tops, but 350,000. We're going to need the National Guard to straighten this situation out. The trouble began when Harold posted in the Harriman Library's Facebook group about why he wanted to organize the event. I said, I'm suffering right now from a deep existential dread. My country has been taken over by large corporations. One political party, the Republicans, are racist, crazy and anti-woman. And the other, the Democrats are corrupt and always act to benefit the corporations when nobody is looking. I vote. I organize. I donate. Nothing changes. Nothing I say or do matters. So, I'm just going to get high and pull an airplane around with my teeth. Who wants to help make it happen? Can you tell us what happened next? Yes. Well, as you can tell. I'm not capable of pulling an airplane around with my teeth. I'm 57 years old and have a hernia. That's pretty clear from my profile photo. Or so I thought. A lot of people liked and commented on the post. When I told people I wanted to hold an event for a local charity. And not actually pull an airplane around with my teeth. The post exploded from there. What made the post go viral? People thought I was kidding about the charity part. Really? Everyone thought you were serious about pulling an airplane around with your teeth. That's right. And every time I tried to back out of it, people just kept escalating it from there. Someone who saw the post found a Boeing plane at the airport that the company forgot about. Another man had a surprising amount of bungee cord that probably warrants a visit from the state troopers. To top it all off, New York Stewart International is rarely busy. 
unless you want to fly to Iceland, so despite my best efforts to call it all off, the event just kind of came together, so I said, fine, I'll do it. What was going through your mind when you said that? Who's going to drive to Newburgh to see a 57-year-old orthodontist get high and pull an airplane around with his teeth? About 350,000 people. Nancy, I am freaking out right now. And you're not even high. That's correct. Are you going to go through with it? I'd look like a real asshole if I didn't. This is Nancy Diamante for the Harriman Herald. Thank you, Nancy. That's all the news from Happy Harriman, New York this week. We now return to what are you working on with BJ Mendelssohn, already in progress. That is so well said. I, I'm curious, like, what you would say to your younger self, like, if you had a time machine and you can go back, like, what would you, what would you tell yourself when you first arrived at LA? I would tell myself that enjoy the journey and patience is truly a virtue. Because you get really impatient. You get really impatient, waiting, wanting, needing, feeling like you deserve more. And you realize that the truth is you will, you will get it when you earn it. And that's one of the things that's extremely important in the entertainment game is everyone, everyone's destiny will come at their appropriate time. Like We don't know a young Morgan Freeman. There's no young Morgan Freeman. You're Morgan, and it's not like Morgan Freeman was born 75 years old. What happened was this is a person who put in a lot of time, effort, dedication, and their timing came as they approached an older age and played this older age re wonderful part that we're so that's consistent and we're so used to. That's just how that works. Everybody's time. Not everyone gets to be a Leonardo DiCaprio child prodigy and then just hit Gilbert Grape and then hit Titanic and then hit, you know, that's not just how it works out for everybody. Everybody has their own journey. So be patient, but enjoy that journey. And the last thing I would tell myself is practice makes perfect. Nobody gets on the court and becomes LeBron James. You have to hit the gym. You have to practice. And there are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts around that. It doesn't matter how good you are, how much natural talent you think you may or may not have. Ultimately, it's that practice that will make perfect. Yeah. You know, something that blew my mind was when I, when I found out that Morgan Freeman, that wasn't his real voice. <laughs> you, know, you know, like that, that just was kind of like, oh my God. And he did, there's, I forget if it's on Conan or it's one of the late night shows where he's saying, you know, he, he took vocal lessons and he modeled his voice after his coach. And that's, you know, that's how he got his voice to where he wanted it to be in order to find that work. And I think the, and people don't realize that. A hundred percent. That goes back to the invest in yourself. That goes back to that. Having a vocal coach is not cheap. Having a vocal coach and finding that rhythm and practicing until now his voice is one of the is synonymous with we place it as the voice of God so many yes. times in so many movies. That's how wonderful his voice is, and it becomes something that he has earned. It was not simply given. Yes. Yeah, I think that's so important. Like, I, I think that he earned it, and he worked hard, and he put in the hours. Um, it, it gets lost, and that's why I'm glad that you reiterated it. It's something I try to reiterate on the show as well. Let me, But let me ask you, who... What were you, what was your inspiration? So you saw that you were like going back to watching Fusion TV. You see you see this guy. He's doing jokes. He's doing cut-ins. But was there? Did you know at that point that you wanted to do comedy? Like was it watching him? I realized that I could do comedy when I realized 
when I realized I could do comedy is different than when I wanted to do comedy. My want to do comedy began with Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle's Killing Him Softly at the Lincoln Theater, which I snuck into and I watched that, was the inspiration behind this secret desire to enlighten and enrich people's lives through laughter. And it was something that was inspired by me through Dave Chappelle. The aspiration came when Maz and Max gave me the opportunity to be on stage. And then the infiltration came when I saw somebody who looked like me doing something that I now felt that I could do. And that's why representation is so important. That's why inspiration is so important. And that's why personal aspiration and having people who are helping you with your motivation is also extremely important. Damn right. Now, I'd love to ask you about your creative process. Um, now that you, you've been doing this professionally for so long, how do you, how do you approach working on a new set? So my approach to comedy is very astute. It's very, it's all the time. I, I don't clock in and clock out. I'm always looking at the world with this social observance mind in which I'm taking it in and filtering, filtering it through my comedic brain that specifically as much as possible unique to me. That's why it's so important in comedy to be able to find your own voice. It means everything to find that voice and dedicate your comedy to it. So even when you look at Chappelle and Kevin Hart, who are two amazing comedians, you would never really accept Dave Chappelle type stuff coming out of Kevin Hart's mouth and vice versa. They each have their unique perspective and unique style, which is synonymous to themselves. And that's a very important thing to realize. And it's not easy or as easy as it sounds, especially in the beginning, because in the beginning, you're kind of modeling your voice after what you think is funny instead of what you are as funny. And that's a distinct, distinct difference that you need to resonate and reflect upon yourself and find that voice within yourself as you grow in comedy to become a truly good comedian. So my, my process is more just always being ready, always being on and always paying attention. That doesn't mean that I'm always cracking or busting jokes. It means that my mind is always just taking in this information, digesting it, and remembering. And the worst part is when I don't write something down and I just thought of the funniest thing and I forget it the way you would a dream or the way you would a person's name after you met them. It's just like you forget it completely. And no matter what, you it's gone. So have that notebook or have your phone or whatever's yes. best for you. Be ready. Always be ready and always be writing. That was my next question for you. Like, how do you, I, I have pens and notebooks like all around me and all over the house. Uh, how do you, do you use anything to keep track of these thoughts as they come in? I would love, I would love to tell you that I'm responsible. I have tons of notebooks that are just empty, but just having them, having them makes me feel better. Like they're empty notebooks in which I always tell myself I'm going to write down stuff in them, but I really just have like a brain and a brain for it. And I just keep my, my thoughts in my head or my notes. And, and if it's something that's really good, what I'll do is I will message it to a friend 
and then ask them, hey, what was that thing I told you that one time? And my messages don't always make sense. So sometimes if it's gone by and I just write someone dolphin pussy and they're like, I have no idea what you were trying to say to me. I have no idea what what you were saying. Honestly, I was going to call PETA. I was going to call PETA and have you arrested because I have no idea. And I'm like, I have no idea what I was thinking either. What was I thinking? So I try to, I try, but you know, slow motion is better than no motion. Yes. No, I, again, I, I, I feel like you should, you should be a comedy coach because like you've encapsulated so many of the questions I try to get to, uh, so beautifully in, in so few words. And so I, uh, I'm like, I'm struggling to think of my follow-up question. Cause you just, you just, you like, you keep answering them. I'm um, here so with you. Let me, let me ask you like, who's, whose work do you really admire that doesn't get the attention it deserves? There are a lot of comedians who I watch and I'm like, these guys are up next. Now, some of them became big names. So like a Gerard Carmichael, which I was able to determine this guy's amazing before everybody else even understood. And some people actually used to criticize and complain about him. And I was like, no, this guy is the next thing. This guy has a thing. So there are comedians who I watch and I'm like, I'm just impressed. And some of them are are open micers. Some of them are even more behind in this long, in-depth journey than myself. I've obviously graduated from open micer to feature and headliner and there's that there's a huge difference and a huge gap and then between headliner where i'm at and headliner where Chappelle is at is almost another infinite gap upon itself but i see some people putting in work there are people like uh this one comedian crystal marie who has this amazing who, who just is has an amazing onstage presence and it's just straight faced and i love watching crystal work i love watching people like Moz and Max work a crowd and come up with things that are actually something so ubiquitous that it relates to everyone in the world because that's something we often forget is that there's a it's a it's a small world but it's a big world after all like yeah it's a small world after all but it's actually a much bigger world than we think and what makes it even what makes it small is our relatability to one another and i love relatable comedy where if you can say it in Oklahoma, you can say it in New York City, and you can say it in Singapore, and everyone is laughing because they can all relate to it. Uh, it's part of the it's part of the human experience, and I love that. So I watch comedians. I watch a lot of comedians who are coming up, and I love watching them and seeing how they're performing. And then I love the big names. I love the Chappelles. I love. I just watched. I watched a show at the Hollywood Bowl where I saw Jeff Ross, Jimmy Carr. Earthquake, John Stewart, Chris Rock, and Dave Chappelle, all in the wow. same show. And that that was a comedy class. Watching them as not a performer, but as a fan, that was a class on comedy. Absolutely. I'd love to know hold on, I'm thinking as I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Um, so on uh Jesus and Mero, Denzel Washington was on there and touching on something that you had just said, he said that the the thing that makes him so good is is the specificity right like it's the specificity that's universal and, and do you find that like when you're when you're listening to jokes when you're writing the jokes it, you, you mentioned like if you can make a joke in oklahoma and get them to laugh then, then it should be able to work so i'm but i'm wondering if if that's the key to that is is the specificity to your life and your voice that makes it universal 
I agree with Denzel because honestly, it's not just the specificity. It's also being specific to yourself, right? So I'm a comedian and I'm not a caterer. People often ask me, do you change your material for the different crowd? And it's like, no, no, I don't because I don't cater to the crowd. I'm a comedian for the crowd. And so I found that the specific niche that I'm in is not a niche of topic. It's a niche of personification and qualifying degrees of topics which I talk about. It's things if I don't talk about this in my normal average everyday life, then I don't talk about it on stage. And that's really how it goes for me. And it's the same way that you should look at business. We should look at business the same. If you don't understand something, you probably shouldn't invest in it. And that means no one should be investing in crypto. But when it really comes, no one understands it. No one understands it. But what I'm really saying is like, if you don't understand something, you shouldn't, you shouldn't invest in it, which is why real estate guys don't invest out of nowhere into tech. And tech guys don't invest out of nowhere into cars. And car people don't invest out of nowhere into grocery stores. Even though they know they all make money, they make money in their individual sectors, which is relegated to what they know best. And that's how I feel about comedy. I talk about the things that I know best. I talk about my personal experiences. I talk about the way I see the world. I talk about the topics that range. Sure, they range, but they're specific to me. And that's what I discuss and, and enjoy the most on stage. And it wasn't always like that. I wasn't, I was in the beginning, like most comedians, I was looking for the laugh. And so looking for the laugh means talking about things that may not be a part of you. And oftentimes they end up being the low hanging fruit. They're the low hanging fruit of comedy. So if you're up there, if you're, if you're a dick and fart guy, then be the dick and fart comedian. But if you're not, then that's probably not your forte because it's not sincere and it's not authentic. And one of the most important things of finding your own voice is being sincere and being authentic and being true to yourself. We see a very similar thing in rap. In rap, two rappers are talking about the same things, guns and drugs and money and bitches, right? Sure. But the reason why one rapper does nothing and the other one goes platinum is because we believe Gucci man. We believe that guy. It doesn't matter. We believe him. It's not like the rap is amazing and we're just mind blown by the way they, they mesh the words. Sometimes they can even Dr. Seuss it up but we believe them. And that's why comedians win, is because we believe them. I, even, I believe Jeff Foxworthy. I believe that guy. Other, other comedians were talking about being a redneck, but not, not like that guy. I believe yes. him. I yes. believe him. It's like pro wrestling, honestly. Like that, that's how I like this, because if you buy into that character, you're along for the ride. I Let love that. I have, uh, I have time for one more question with you. But first, tell us where we can find you. Where can we find your stuff? Find me all across the board at I am Tehran, all across the board on social media. I A M T E H R A N. My name is Tehran, like the capital of Iran. So if you don't know how to spell it, just watch Fox News. It's literally on every night. Also, find me at the Lab Factory every single Thursday night at 9:30 p.m. Tehran Thursday. It's the funnest comedy show you will ever 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 enjoy. So it may not be the funniest, but it is for sure the funnest. And it's all about all about the people. My last question for you is what's the one thing that you've always wanted to be asked in an interview, but you just haven't been asked it yet. I've always wanted to be asked what my 
favorite comedy position is, and nobody ever asked me that. Interesting. What would it be? Oh, well, nobody asked me that. It's too late, BJ. You're going to have to find out from someone who actually just goes out of their way and asks me that. There's a lot of different comedy positions. It's much like sexual positions, much like life positions. There are different comedy positions. And what is yours? You know what? Everyone has a favorite comedy position and you might not even realize it. Some people have the position where they put their hand on their face when they're talking. Someone has to hold the mic like it's like you hold the mic like it's like a like you kind of hold it like this, right? You hold it with like it pointing down some people like standing behind the stand what's your favorite comedy position Interesting. okay i'm gonna have to have you back to find out yeah it's one of those <laughs> things you gotta find out and find the best way to find out is to come to a show you know i'm pretty i'm pretty upset that the mets are good now why is that well, because now we can't experience things like when they had a 97 year old pitching coach you mean Phil Regan? Yeah, th- that guy who played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. That team hasn't even existed for 65 years. Like, do you understand how close we all came to having this super old guy coaching the Mets? Do you understand the kind of comedy gold that could have been, like right now when we need laughter the most? He probably wouldn't even remember who was on the team. Regan would be in the dugout chewing tobacco and saying shit like, send in Willie Mays. And then one of the guys on the bench would be like, coach, Willie Mays is dead. And then Regan would be like, the hell he is, get him in there. I don't think Willie Mays is dead. He's not. And I hope Willie Mays lives forever, I really do. But Willie Mays also hasn't played for the Mets since 1973. Anyway, I just want people to understand the potential joy that we're all deprived of now that the Mets are good. Hmm. Well, that's all for this week. If you enjoyed this episode of Weiwo.tv, you know what you need to do. Rate us and leave us a review wherever your favorite podcast can be found. That'll help people find this show and hopefully enjoy it as much as you did. You did enjoy this show, right? We're going to assume you did, because you made it to the outro. Most people don't. Be sure to follow BJ on Instagram at BJ Mendelson and tell him who you'd like to see interviewed next. You can also text your suggestions to BJ at 646-331-8341. But don't call that number. BJ says he's only going to answer if you're Melissa O'Neill from ABC's The Rookie. Also, only if you're going to ask him out on a date. We'll see you next time. Right?